This episode of California Dreaming is brought to you by Blueberry. Creating a podcast isn't that simple. It's more than just recording yourself and uploading it. To really get your show to be everything you want it to be, you're going to need a little more than that. You need easy and reliable hosting so your time can be spent creating your content. The most accurate download stats so you know if you're reaching the audience that you're wanting to. And a web page that makes setting up totally easy on you and won't take up too much of your valuable time. And Blueberry offers all of this and more for hosts and aspiring hosts alike. Simple media hosting, a fully integrated WordPress website with their PowerPress sites. So if you already have a podcast or you've always dreamed about starting one, head over to www.orbitaljigsaw.com dream to sign up. And the first month is on me. The Blueberry support team is available to walk you through the steps of migrating your show without losing any subscribers or to help you get started in the process of launching your new show. With the first month for free, using promo code DREAM, you've got no excuses. Let's get on with the show. What is a super tramp? According to all of the online dictionaries, it's either an English rock band, or it's the name for any type of animal which follows the super tramp strategy of high dispersion among different habitats, towards none of which it is particularly specialized. Super tramp species are typically the first to arrive in newly available habitats, such as volcanic islands and freshly deforested land. In addition, super tramps can have a profoundly negative effect on more highly specialized flora and fauna, both directly and indirectly through competition for resources. Today, I'm going to tell you the story of a man who called himself Supertramp in his travels. Alexander Supertramp, to be exact, but only in his travels. He is a young man, a son, a brother, a college graduate who graduated with honors. He was also an adventurer, someone who decided being on the grid was not a thing he wanted to do anymore. And in doing so, he would go on to become an intriguing and fascinating figure. A hero of sorts, to many who've heard his story and have become enamored by it. Many have romanticized his fabled life, but when you peel away at the layers of the complexities of this young man, who seemingly had a personal challenge of living off the land or die trying, a different picture, a darker picture begins to emerge. You will find very little about his life that would be as romanticized as you might think it would have been. At least up until the day he decided the life that he was born into was not something he wanted to be a part of any longer. In today's 56th episode of California Dreaming, The Tale of the Super Tramp. Christopher Johnson McCandless, who we are going to refer to as Chris, was born on February 12, 1968 in the city of El Segundo, California, to mother Wilhelmina or Billy McCandless and father Walter or Walt McCandless. The couple also had a daughter, Corrine, whom Chris was very, very close to. Chris also had six half-siblings from his father's first marriage, and they lived with their mother in California as well. But what Chris hadn't realized until later on that 20 minutes away from his family home in California, Walt was continuing to keep a home with his first wife and high school sweetheart, Marcia, 
with his children with her. He never actually divorced her when he married Billy. He already had children with Marcia when he began having children with Billy. As a matter of fact, both women were pregnant around the same time. Chris's half-sibling having been born in November of 1967, and Chris was born three months later in February of 1968. When Chris found out about his father's double life, so to speak, it infuriated him. It infuriated him that the life that he had known up until then had all been a lie. And it's been surmised that it would be Walt's shifting back and forth from one family to another and back again that had a deep effect on Chris and would forever change the way he looked at the world. Chris's father was literally a rocket scientist. In 1976, Walt was offered a job with NASA as an antenna specialist. So the family up and moved to Annandale, Virginia, as the job was in the nation's capital of Washington, D.C., and Chris's mom got a job as an administrative assistant at Hughes Aircraft. But the couple continued to have a very tumultuous relationship, racked with instances of domestic violence often in front of the children. In 1996, author John Krakauer wrote a book about Chris's story entitled Into the Wild. But one thing was glaringly missing from his novel. Chris's motivation for the direction his life would ultimately take. And there is a reason for that. Chris's sister, Corrine, asked him to leave the domestic violence out of the book as she didn't really want to put her parents through that, knowing what they had done to her and her brother. She wanted it to be off the record to shield them from their secrets being fully exposed to the public, just in case they wanted to somehow ever improve. But they never would. And some people in general malign Chris, accusing him of being the one that was cruel to his mother and father for putting them through such worry and heartache. So Corrine penned her own novel called The Wild Truth, which recounts the domestic violence that went on in the McCandless home, letting it be known to the world what it truly was Chris was running from. She didn't want to sugarcoat their experience anymore, as she began to feel as though she was doing a disservice to her brother and those who were inspired by him. She wanted people to be inspired by the truth. And Corrine did not mince words. In the introduction of her book, she says that she and Chris grew up in a volatile, viciously abusive home with a father who made their weak-willed yet hyper-competent mother his victim and his accomplice. She talks in detail about the beatings her mother endured at the hands of her father how she and Chris would both be laid across their father's lap while he whipped both of them at the same time with a belt. He would beat them, and Corrine could see the pleasure he got out of doing it, because he'd usually be smiling. She describes how their marriage was constantly drowning in alcohol on top of the abuse, and how there were some good times. The camping was particularly fun for Chris and Corrine, as it seemed like those were the few times that there wasn't fighting between their parents. But the pictures they took with four smiles on their family trips was a facade. And Walt brutalized both of his wives. But when Corrine was one, Walt's first wife was finally able to leave the violent marriage and take her six children with her. And as many times as Billy promised to leave Walt, a promise that she made to her children over and over again, she would never actually go through it. 
letting her children feel let down repeatedly. She told them that once she had Chris, she was stuck with him. And that is what Chris had to grow up with. Feelings of all this being his fault for existing. Chris graduated from Woodson High School in Fairfax, Virginia in 1986. He was an excellent student, but he was known to go a little against the grain much of the time, according to his teachers and classmates. He tried his hand at several different sports, ultimately settling on the cross-country track team, of which he was team captain. He wanted to instill in his team to treat running like a kind of a spiritual journey where they saw themselves running against all the darkness, evil, and hatred in the world. After he graduated high school, Chris went to Southern California to visit with some relatives and old friends. And it was during this trip that Chris learned that Walt had not been divorced from his first wife when he and his sister were born. And he kept up that double life between the two homes before they moved to Virginia. This, coupled with the abuse that he had endured all of those years, was just too much. Everything Chris had known about his life was a lie. Chris attended Emory University in Georgia and graduated in May of 1990 with a 3.72 GPA and a bachelor's degree in history and anthropology. He became interested in South African history, African politics, as well as the food crisis in Africa. He had received from his parents a gift of $40,000 to be used while attending school. He co-founded the university newspaper called the Emory Wheel, for which he also wrote several articles and editorials. He also began traveling alone in his signature yellow Datsun whenever he had a chance. He even drove it to Fairbanks, Alaska for the first time as well, which is an incredible drive for that little car. But while in college, he spent very little time with his mother and father, but he did connect with them at his graduation, which they flew down to attend. And the day that they left was Mother's Day, which he gave his mom a greeting card and a gift. And that was something that he hadn't done in years. They offered to buy him a new car and pay to put him through law school, but he refused both. He even told them that weekend that he thought he was going to disappear for a little while. He took them to the airport on Mother's Day, and that would be the last time his parents would ever see him. He did write to them once more, in which he enclosed his graduation pictures. Chris wrote several letters to Corrine expressing his disdain for his parents while he was in college, and he told her that he planned to divorce them, to have a clean break from them once and for all. She has shared portions of his letters in her book because, you see, her parents actually deny Chris's actions had anything to do with them. But he made it pretty clear to Corrine that it had everything to do with them. She understood that most people think or thought Chris's journey had to do with his love of the outdoors and his sense of adventure, but a big part of it was their traumatic childhood. The double life, the violence towards their mother, and themselves. Both sets of Walt's children agree. Their father was extremely controlling, with an incredibly short fuse that led to verbal and physical outbursts, tirades, angry threats on both wives. Corrine would begin to hear yelling, and it would start to escalate, to the point where Chris, in order to protect himself and his sister, would take them both outside. But then, 
they would hear their mother yell for them to come and see what their father was doing to her. And their father would say, yeah, kids, get in here and look what your mother is making me do. There'd be a lot of choking, a lot of shoving. Walt would throw Billy down on the bed and choke her. And in between breaths, she would yell for help. When he was done, he would just walk out of the room and she'd run over to Chris and Corrine and hug them and tell them how sorry she was. But all the vows to leave Walt never came to fruition. And as far as wife number one is concerned, Marcia, she was able to get a restraining order against Walt in 1972, just before they divorced. And the order alleged that Walt had struck her in the arm and face, that he had struck and made threats against her on a number of occasions, and that she was in fear for her safety. Corrine also talked about a time when Walt turned physically violent against Chris when he was still in high school. An argument ensued, and their father just punched him in the face. Chris just looked at his dad with disgust and exhaled. It was the first time Corrine saw a look of fear on her father's face. And Chris just walked away. Walt and Billy McCandless have, from what I could find, do not acknowledge the claims that their daughter has made. When they interview, they focus on Chris and the pictures and writings that he left behind, which are compiled in a book entitled Back to the Wild. They go on book tours and sign copies and talk about Chris. But for Corrine, the elephant is still just standing there in the room. So when her book, The Wild Truth, came out in 2014, they issued a statement saying, quote, This fictionalized writing has absolutely nothing to do with our beloved son Chris, his journey, or his character. This whole unfortunate event in Chris's life 22 years ago is about Chris and his dreams. They've also said that the accusations Corrine has made are spiteful. But it is clear in the letters that Chris wrote to Corrine while he was in college that they were the catalyst for his decision to part ways with the life that he's known. And he knew that he would not be able to keep in touch with his sister either because she would try and seek him out. It, unfortunately, had to be a clean break from her as well. And he told her that hopefully, if anything good were to come of his dropping out of life, that it would be their parents who would realize the error of their ways and become better parents for her. She kept the letters that he sent her. Letters that spelled out numerous complaints about their parents and how terrible their childhood was. In one letter he wrote after graduation, he said, quote, Once the time is right, with one abrupt, swift action, I'm going to completely knock them out of my life. I'm going to divorce them as my parents. I'll be through with them once and for all, forever. So after Chris saw his mother and father off to the airport in May of 1990, he set his plan in motion. His first order of business was to put in a request at the post office to hold all of his incoming mail for a month. He gave notice that he was moving out of his place. He began giving away all of his personal belongings, except, of course, for his bare essentials and that old yellow Datsun. He donated the rest of the money he had left to Oxfam, an organization dedicated to helping hungry children all around the world. And the last anyone in his family ever heard from him was in June of 1990. Soon, all the letters that his parent had sent during that time, as you know, they weren't hearing from him, so they were slightly concerned. Those were all sent back undelivered. 
They went down to Atlanta where Chris had been living while he was in college, but found that he had left a month or so earlier and his apartment was empty. His parents began a search for him and they hired a private investigator even. Mom would leave a note on her front door addressed to Chris every time she left the house hoping that he would come by, find it, and contact them. But he made himself impossible to find and he went to great lengths to do so. Even changing his name from Chris McCandless to Alexander Supertramp. So everywhere his travels took him, that's what he told people his name was. Alex. In October of 1990, a National Park ranger found a yellow Datsun in a dry riverbed in Lake Mead National Park. A flash flood disabled the engine and it had to be ditched. But before doing so, Chris removed the license plates and along with the rifle and a couple of other personal items, buried them nearby under some dirt and gravel. And he also burned the last of the money that he had had and took a picture of it. There was a note with the vehicle that said it was abandoned and is free to anyone who wants to tow it out. Inside, the ranger found a couple of bags of rice, some clothing, a guitar, a saucepan, $4.93 in change, an electric razor, and the keys to the car. The ranger was able to jumpstart it, and a trace of the vehicle led only to a Hertz rental car business. Chris's vehicle had actually been there since July 6, 1990, according to Chris's own diaries found later on. The rangers would go on to keep the car and use it as a decoy vehicle in some undercover drug operations. So Chris set out on foot for the next two months, hiking around Lake Mead, then up to Lake Tahoe, then around the Sierra Nevada mountains. He found some work on a farm for a short period of time in Northern California, and it was then he met and befriended a woman named Jan Burris and her boyfriend Bob when Chris was hitchhiking and they offered to give him a ride. It was sometime in September of 1990, Chris hitched a ride with a man named Wayne Westerberg and headed to South Dakota. He worked for him for a short period of time in his grain elevator to earn money to continue on his journey. Wayne would remain one of Chris's closest friends along the way. But at some point, Wayne had gotten in some legal trouble, so Chris could no longer stay working at his grain elevator, so he started heading west again. Chris's parents at that point were still searching for him when they received a ticket in the mail for the Dotson from California. And this is also when they discovered that he had donated all that money left over from college to charity. Meanwhile, Chris hitched a ride to Needles, California, which is in the Southern California desert, and there he purchased a canoe. His plan was to travel by canoe along the Colorado River from California to Mexico. As he was going, he was lifting off the rice he brought with him and the fish that he caught. His trip on the Colorado sees him through a lot of desert and national parks. In a letter he wrote to Wayne, he told him that he appreciated the money that he earned while he was working for him, but it made tramping too easy. He expressed his desire to live off the road and live off of nature. Sometime in December of 1990, Chris crossed into Mexico, but by January, he was having difficulties with his canoe and decided it was time to abandon that too. He was eventually arrested by immigration, but they quickly released him back at the U.S.-Mexico border. He made his way to the Los Angeles area and he wanted to get an identification card but became too nervous that he might be traced. 
So he returned to that wash in Arizona where he had buried those items and dug them up. From there, he made his way to Las Vegas starting around February of 1991 and was living on the streets there. And according to his own diaries, he was living life to the fullest. There is not much record of what was going on in Vegas for the first part of the year. It is known that sometime by mid to late summer, Chris had moved on from Vegas to the town of Bullhead City, Arizona. He found work at a local McDonald's and also opened a bank account in his own name. Although those who worked with him described him as a hard worker, he was also kind of a loner with some quirky personality traits. And Chris did run into some issues with his co-workers who noticed that he had a bad smell to him, leading to some tensions between him and those who worked with him. He did not tell his co-workers that he was a drifter, and he didn't really have a place to shower. He would eventually befriend an old man named Charlie who took Chris in and allowed him to live in his camper. By early December of 1991, Chris reached out to Jan and Bob again and asked them if they would come visit him in Bullhead City, but he ended up showing up at their trailer unexpectedly. Then sometime in mid-December, Chris began living with Jan and Bob at a place called Slab City, California in the Sonoran Desert in the California Badlands. I hadn't heard of Slab City until I heard Chris's story a couple years back. It's a site where several thousand campers go during the winter months of the year. However, despite temperatures reaching its peak during the summer at upwards of 120 degrees Fahrenheit or 48 degrees Celsius, there are some 150 permanent residents who live at the slabs for the entire year. Some live off of retirement and are mostly driven there because of poverty. Others go there wanting to live off the grid or just to be left alone. The slabs is decommissioned and uncontrolled and parking is free. There is no electricity and no running water, no sewers, no toilets, and no trash pickup services. Many residents use generators or solar panels to access electricity, and the closest place to civilization is about four miles away, and that's where the slab residents go to do their basic shopping. So this was where Chris went to stay at that time, with Jan and Bob in their trailer at the slabs. While he was there, he helped Jan organize her book-selling business, and according to her, he enjoyed helping very much with it, especially sorting through the classic novels that she had for sale. Chris also began interacting with the Slab community. He played music for other campers, and he watched football games as well. And this is where he revealed that he was a fan of Washington, D.C. teams. Chris also began an exercise regimen, as he was planning an intense journey into the wild namely Alaska. A few weeks later, Jan dropped Chris off in Salton City so he could purchase some supplies that he would need for his Alaskan adventure. She tried to give him some warm clothes to take with him, but when she got back to camp, she found the items stuffed under her car seat. During this time, from the canoeing through the western United States, the journeys through California, Arizona, Nevada, Chris was learning survival techniques and he was confident that he was equipped with the skills to survive in the Alaskan wild. At the same time, he's left the life of Chris McCandless behind and transformed himself into Alexander Supertramp. The friendships he made along the way from South Dakota all the way to California were lasting. He had built up the confidence in himself that he can be self-reliant for the most part, 
but did acknowledge that the diet of fish and rice for several months caused him some malnutrition. But he stayed hopeful that he could do this. While near the Salton Sea, Chris befriended a man named Ronald Franz. Having met while camping at Anza Borrego State Park, he offered Chris a ride and the two became friends. Ronald was a Vietnam vet and struggled with alcoholism. While he was overseas, his wife left with their child, and he's kind of been drifting ever since. Ronald quickly took to Chris, like the son he never had. He tried to convince him to go looking for a job, but Chris told him that he already had a plan, and he told Ronald that his life does not have to be stuck in one place if he doesn't want it to be. During their time together, Chris told Ronald about all his plans, his worldviews, his beliefs and ideas. Ronald taught Chris leatherworking, making belts and shoes, stuff like that. Eventually, Ronald would give Chris a ride to San Diego, but sometime in February, he sent a letter to Ronald telling him that he was having trouble finding work there. Towards the end of February, he wrote to both Jan and Ronald, telling them both that he was arrested for train jumping. When he was released, he called Robert to see if he could pick him up. So Robert did, driving up to Colton and picked up Chris. They shared a meal. He bought him some supplies and helped him get ready to go back to South Dakota where he had some work waiting for him with Wayne again. And on one of the last times Robert and Chris were together, Robert asked him if he could adopt him as his grandson. Chris told him they could talk about it when he got back from Alaska. Chris spent March and April in South Dakota working at Wayne's Grain Elevator again. It was Chris's plan to stay there to work to save money for his trip to Alaska. He talked at length with Wayne and his girlfriend Gail about his travel plans as well as his love for his sister. He also hinted at some of the issues he had with his family, that his parents were oppressive, secretive, and irrational. During Chris's last evening with them, the three of them, went to a local bar to play piano and share a bottle of Jack Daniels, which seemed to be one of Chris's favorite drinks. The next morning, Chris was in tears as he bid farewell to his friends. This was April of 1992. A week later, the couple received postcards from Chris originating from Montana. By the end of April, they received postcards from him again, saying goodbye. The one to Wayne said, April 27th, 1992. Greetings from Fairbanks. This is the last you shall hear from me, Wayne. Arrived here two days ago. It was very difficult to catch rides in the Yukon Territory, but I finally got here. Please return all mail I received to the sender. It might be a very long time before I return south. If this adventure proves fatal and you don't ever hear from me again, I want you to know that you are a great man. I now walk into the wild. Alex. Another postcard he sent to Jan read, April 27, 1992. Hey guys, this is the last communication you shall receive from me. I now walk out to live amongst the wild. Take care. It was great knowing you. Alexander. After leaving South Dakota, Chris began his trek to the Denali National Park. An RV delivery man named Gaylord Stuckey picked up Chris hitchhiking and gave him a ride from a hot spring at the edge of the Yukon Territory to Whitehorse, Alaska. 
Gaylord found himself impressed with Chris's seemingly high level of intelligence, and he again spoke endearingly of his sister, but also of his father's bigamy. Having taken a liking to Chris, he decided to give him a ride all the way to Fairbanks. When they arrived there, Gaylord pressed Chris to call his parents, but he didn't want to, and they parted ways. While in Fairbanks, Chris visited the university and purchased a book about edible plants. He also purchased a gun. Gaylord returned a little while later to look for Chris, but was unable to find him. Chris was gone. On April 28, 1992, an electrician who worked and lived in Fairbanks, Alaska, named Jim Galleon, gave Chris a ride to the head of the Stampede Trail, a rugged track just outside the small town of Healy, Alaska. This would be the last time Chris would be seen alive. Jim expressed his concerns for his safety and his well-being out there, particularly because of the minimal amount of items Chris had with him. A small backpack, a minimal amount of camping equipment, and very little in the way of food rations. And it was pretty obvious to Jim that Chris lacked the experience he felt it would take to sustain himself for an extended period of time in the Alaskan wild. When he left Chris there, he doubted he would make it out alive. He repeatedly tried to talk Chris out of going, even offering to give him a ride all the way to Anchorage as well as help him purchase the right equipment and supplies he would need out there. But Chris turned down his repeated offers and warnings. But he did accept a couple of things from Jim. A pair of boots, a couple of sandwiches, and a bag of chips. So when Jim finally dropped Chris off, he figured Chris would grow hungry after a few days and head back towards the highway. Chris headed along Alaska Stampede Trail, in April still covered in snow. It is a road located in the Denali Borough of Alaska. There is a gravel road for about 8 miles and the remainder of the route is mostly remote, difficult, and often dangerous hiking trails. The east end of the trail used to be accessible by railroad, but today, the main access from the trail is Alaska Route 3, or the George Parks Highway, which opened in the early 70s. As Chris hiked the trail, he kept a diary, which I will go over a little bit later. He followed a faded snowmobile track into the National Park, and he easily made his way across the Teklanika River, which was still pretty shallow because of winter. He did fall through the ice at one point, but he made it out okay. On May 1st, 1992, Chris happened upon an abandoned bus about 28 miles or 48 kilometers from the town of Healy, and he recorded this find in his journal calling it the Magic Bus. And on a piece of plywood, Chris inscribed a message about being independent and being able to escape the poisons of society. He decided to make this bus his own sort of base camp as it does offer some comfortable accommodations, a bed and a stove. It was a 1946 International Harvester K5 that somehow ended up parked along the Stampede Trail. On its rusted exterior, it reads Fairbanks City Transit System Bus 142. Chris decided that this would be a good place to come back to as he becomes familiar with his new living situation. Now, it might be worth mentioning that Chris isn't that far from civilization. He's even pretty close to a highway, but it was just isolated enough to make it difficult, if not impossible, to leave, especially if he were injured or sick. So Chris had a plan of hiking west until he made his way to the Bering Sea but he quickly came to realize that the Alaskan brush was far too unforgiving, 
So he ended up returning to the magic bus, setting up camp there, intent on living off the land. He had with him about 10 pounds of rice, a Remington semi-automatic rifle with 400 rounds of ammunition, some books, personal effects, and some camping equipment. And life went on in the magic bus. By the end of May, he made a to-do list on a strip of bark. Collect and store ice for refrigerating meat, cover the vehicle's missing windows with plastic, lay in a supply of firewood, clean the accumulation of ash from the stove, and under the bold heading of long-term, he had a separate list. Map the area, improvise a bathtub, collect skins and feathers to sew into clothing, construct a bridge across a nearby creek, repair a mess kit, blaze a network of hunting trails. In his journal, he cataloged his catch of wild animals. May 28th, gourmet duck. June 1st, five squirrels. June 2nd, porcupine, ptarmigan, four squirrels, gray bird. June 3rd, another porcupine, four squirrel, two gray bird, ash bird. June 4th, a third porcupine, squirrel, gray bird. On the 5th, he shot a Canadian gray goose. And on June 9th, he shot a moose, his biggest catch thus far. Chris was thrilled with the successful bagging of a moose, and he even took a picture with his prize, rifle hoisted over his head. But at one point, he noted a tinge of remorse for shooting a relatively small moose, which weighed about 700 pounds or 317 kilograms. But this was a huge supply of meat for Chris. It went against everything that he believed in to not let any part of the animal go to waste. So he spent the next six days feverishly attempting to preserve its meat. Swarming with flies and mosquitoes, he butchered the moose. He boiled the organs into a stew. He then dug a hole near the stream where he tried to smoke the slabs of meat to cure them. So dreamers, I don't know thing one about hunting. But apparently, according to Alaskan hunters, the best way to preserve meat is to slice it into thin strips and air dry them on any kind of rack that you can assemble. But Chris had gotten advice from hunters in South Dakota who told him to smoke his meat, which is something very difficult to do in the circumstances in which Chris found himself. He noted in his journal that butchering was extremely difficult. June 10th, fly and mosquito hordes. Remove intestines, liver, kidneys, one lung, steaks. Get hindquarters and leg to stream. June 11th, remove heart and other lung, two front legs and head. Get rest to stream, hull near cave. Try to protect with smoker. June 12th, remove half ribcage and steaks. Can only work nights. Keep smokers going. June 13th, get remainder of ribcage, shoulder, and neck to cave. Start smoking. June 14th, maggots already. Smoking appears ineffective. Don't know. Looks like a disaster. I now wish I never shot the moose. One of the greatest tragedies of my life. Chris gave up trying to preserve the meat and abandoned the carcass to be had by wolves. This event, however, would change things for Chris. It was kind of an epiphany. He began reading about the morality of eating, and he wrote in his journal, 
When I caught and cleaned and cooked and ate my fish, they seemed to not have fed me essentially. It was insignificant and unnecessary and cost more than it came to. And he felt this way about the moose now as well. Eventually, he got over the wasting of the moose, and his happiness seemed to return through early July. After two months of living in the wild by himself, it seemed he was satisfied with what he had accomplished. He decided that it would be time to go back to civilization, that it was time to wrap up his greatest adventure and give himself back to the world that he left behind. He seemed to have reached a point where he needed to be. Complete autonomy, complete separation from his parents. Could he have been ready to forgive his mother and father for all of their flaws? Maybe, but we can only guess what Chris was going to do once he emerged from the wild. But he did want to make sure that he did look presentable when he encountered people, so he made another list on a piece of bark. Patched jeans, shave, organized pack. On July 2nd, Chris finished reading Tolstoy's short story entitled Family Happiness, which is a narrative about sharing your life with others. He made some notations on some passages that resonated with him. And so, Chris left the magic bus on July 3rd to begin the 20-mile hike back to the road more traveled. Halfway there and two days later, Chris ran into another problem. A big problem. The shallow stream he had crossed back in April that was still frozen over Now that frozen stream had turned into a large, deep body of water due to rain and snowmelt. The Teklanika River was fully flooded and was cold and swift. And even if he were in better health, he wasn't the greatest swimmer, and he has been known to divulge to people that he's even afraid of water. The current was sure to have swept him away. Even if he could fashion a raft, he would not be able to make it across before getting into the white water as it flowed into the gorge. He wrote in his journal, disaster, reined in, river looks impossible, lonely, scared. He turned around and headed back to the magic bus. He thought maybe he could wait and the water levels would drop again soon. Unfortunately, Chris did not have a map with him, otherwise he may have realized that there was a hand-operated tramway that crossed the river only eight-tenths of a mile away from where he had previously crossed. He got back to the bus on July 8th, but it's been speculated that he was not too worried about his situation. It was summer and the area was full of plant and wildlife, so his food supply would not have been a problem. He figured the river would subside sometime in August, so he set back up his base camp at the magic bus and got right back into his daily routine of hunting small animals and gathering plants and berries. For the rest of July, he documented that he killed 35 squirrels, four spruce grouse, five jays and woodpeckers, and two frogs. He was also able to gather wild potatoes, rhubarbs, berries, and mushrooms. But he wasn't really able to sustain his weight. As he was hunting, he was burning more calories than he was taking in, so he was becoming very malnourished. Then Chris made a mistake that would be most detrimental. On July 30th, he entered into his journal... Quote, extremely weak, fault of potato seed, much trouble to stand up, starving, great jeopardy. This was the first entry in his journal that his diet was having an effect on him. 
Despite being malnourished for much of the time that he was out there in the wild, he had been in generally good health. But after July 30th, his health began to steadily decline. There has been some speculation as to what made Chris so sick. He said he thought it was potato seeds. His friend Wayne thought that Chris may have purchased some seeds, including potato seeds, while he was still in South Dakota, but he could not be sure. He said that Chris was going to plant a vegetable garden once he got settled in Alaska. And it's speculated that by the end of July, he had gotten so hungry he decided to eat the seeds. And potato seeds are minimally toxic, and they do contain a poison that occurs in that family of plants. If ingested, they can cause vomiting, diarrhea, and general weakness. But he would have had to consume a lot of potato seeds, like several pounds, to become fatally sick. And it doesn't appear that the last person who saw him saw that he was carrying that much with him. But they could have come from seeds from potatoes Chris found in the wild. According to his journals, he was gathering wild potatoes in late June with no side effects from eating them. And he was collecting its seeds. There is a picture of Chris holding a large Ziploc bag of seeds, and it seems he began to eat them around July 14th. By July 30th, he became extremely ill. It's possible that he mistook the seeds that he was consuming for ones that were in fact edible. Seeds that look similar, even trained botanists have trouble telling them apart because they only have one minor detail about them that's different. And if you aren't trained to notice the difference between wild sweet pea seeds from wild potato seeds, you may very easily poison yourself. And it seems that Chris made this mistake based on what he wrote in his journals and what he found on his rolls of film. But it should be noted that Chris had been very careful about which seeds to eat and which ones not to eat. So it leaves one to wonder why all of a sudden he made such an egregious error. After some studies have been conducted regarding the seeds of the plants Chris had been foraging for, they came to realize that there were some wild potato seeds that had not been documented as being toxic, and Chris just didn't know. He had been eating the roots for some time by the time he fell ill, but when he became extremely hungry, he mistakenly ate the seeds he shouldn't have. If he had been knowledgeable when it came to wild seeds, he might have known. But it was a mistake that would be his demise. The seeds when ingested won't kill a person outright. What it does is prevent the body from absorbing nutrients from what a person eats. Essentially, it locks calories, nutrients, and energy from being gained from the food eaten. And if a person ingests too much of these seeds that contain poisonous alkaloids, the person will starve to death no matter how much that person eats. And if the body is in the kind of lean condition like Chris was in, it's not going to have the kinds of proteins and sugars needed to help flush your body of the toxins. So experts have speculated that Chris ingested a large amount of these seeds and he was already in a starved condition and that these results would be catastrophic. There have been other theories as to what hastened Chris's starvation or what seeds caused it. Some of the seeds that were speculated to have poisoned him have been studied and found to contain no toxins. Some feel he simply starved because he starved. That lean game that he was catching simply wasn't enough to sustain him. And this was the condition Chris found himself in. Too weak to be able to hike out of the Alaskan wild. He became too weak to hunt, and of course, this led him to grow even weaker. 
he was in the throes of starvation. He didn't have any journal entries for July 31st or August 1st. On August 2nd, he wrote Terrible Wind. It was starting to get into the fall season, and the days were getting shorter and the weather cooler. August 5th, Chris wrote in his journal in block letters with exclamation points, Day 100. Made it. But he followed that up with, but in the weakest condition of life, death looms, serious threat, too weak to walk out, have literally become trapped in the wild, no game. And another big mistake Chris made was not bringing a map along with him. Only six miles south of where he was located, there was a park service cabin. It contained emergency food, first aid kits, blankets, and other provisions used by backcountry rangers while they are on patrol during the winter time. And sadly, even a map wouldn't have shown Chris that only four miles away, there were some cabins where he could have sought some shelter and food. In Chris's journal, the dates of August 6th, 7th, and 8th are blank, but he does write down that he shot at a bear and missed. On August 10th, he spotted a caribou but was unable to get a shot at it but he did manage to kill five squirrels. But if he had indeed been poisoned by those seeds, no amount of nutrition was going to help him. His body simply wasn't going to absorb its nutrients. On August 11th, he shot and ate in ptarmigan. By August 12th, Chris had grown even weaker. He managed to leave the bus to look for some berries, but it was also on this day that he posted a note on the outside of the bus that read, SOS, I need your help. I am injured near death and too weak to hike out of here. I am all alone. This is no joke. In the name of God, please remain to save me. I am out collecting berries close by and shall return this evening. Thank you, Chris McCandless. Signed, August? Question mark. He reverted back to his given name instead of signing it Alexander Supertramp. People have kind of wondered why Chris didn't start a fire to get someone's attention to his location. All he would have to do is start a fire and it would grow and bring attention to his location. The speculation is that Chris knew that there was no real path aircraft take that passes over his location, with the exception of passenger jets, but they fly way too high to see. No helicopters go by, no small commuter planes, so no one would really see the fire if he had set one. And his sister is pretty convinced that setting a forest fire isn't something Chris would do. He wouldn't harm the forest, the habitats, or the wildlife to save his own. And she said if anybody knew him as a person, they would understand that about him. Chris entered into the final stages of starvation. On the 12th, he wrote his last words in his journal, which read, Beautiful blueberries. As he was starving... His body was literally consuming itself. The muscles hurt. The heart becomes erratic. The person becomes dizzy. Trouble breathing. The body is cold and exhausted, and so is the mind. The chemicals in the brain are off-balanced. There may be convulsions, maybe hallucinations. Those who have been on the brink of starving to death but survived to describe it have said that the pain seems to subside. They don't feel hungry, and they enter into some kind of state of euphoria, and that this overwhelming calmness comes over them, this sudden clear thinking. 
And this might be reflected in Chris's last journal entry where he wrote beautiful berries. Maybe Chris was in this blissful, peaceful state. And in his journal for the dates of August 13th, 14th, 15th, 16th, 17th, and 18th, the dates have nothing but a line next to them. Just kind of a running count, I guess, but nothing noted. No words, just a line. He had torn a page from a memoir entitled Educating the Wandering Man. It read, Wise men in their bad hours. Death's a fierce metal arc. But to die having made something more equal to the centuries than muscle and bone is mostly to shed weakness. The mountains are dead stone. The people admire or hate their stature, their insolent quietness. The mountains are not softened or troubled, and a few dead men's thoughts have the same temper. On the other side of the torn out page, it was blank. And on this, Chris wrote his goodbye. I've had a happy life and thank the Lord. Goodbye and may God bless all. And he laid down on that bed that was in the bus. He slipped into his sleeping bag and died. After 113 days of living in the wild. On September 6th, a hunter by the name of Butch Killian decided to look for some shelter for the night after a day of moose hunting when he happened upon the magic bus. And it had been converted just for that reason. But as soon as he stepped inside, the strong smell hit him. At first he thought it might have been rotten food, but upon further inspection, he saw a sort of lump in the sleeping bag. He thought about taking a closer look, but he got the feeling that something was terribly wrong, so he stopped himself. He left on his ATV without looking any further for radio or law enforcement. Alaska State Troopers arrived the next day, and they found in the sleeping bag a decomposing body without any identification. There were some books scattered around the body, a rifle, a camera, and a 113-day-long logbook. We do know that Chris was not on any kind of suicide mission. He did everything that he could to try and save himself right up until the very end when he just didn't have the strength to do it anymore. It took a week for authorities to identify him as Chris McCandless, a young, bright, gifted man, seemingly in search of a simple yet fulfilling life. It was found that he scrawled this message on the inside of the bus. No phone, no pool, no pets, no cigarettes. Ultimate freedom. No longer to be poisoned by civilization, he flees and walks alone upon the land to become lost in the wild. And in all of his travels, Chris wasn't the type of person who you would describe as a loner. He made friends and kept them. Everyone who encountered Chris along the way, as I've described through various portions of the story leading up to him heading into the wild, everyone liked him. He was charming and sweet, and he worked very hard. People who gave him rides or took him in considered him to be like family. And it seems what he was doing while he was crisscrossing back and forth across the United States from South Dakota to Arizona to California to Nevada to Mexico and back to South Dakota he was learning how to survive, 
He learned survival techniques every step of the way, hoping to take that wealth of knowledge with him as he made his way into the Alaskan wilderness. But nobody would tell you he went in there to never come out alive. He told everyone he encountered that when he got back, he was going to write a book about his experiences. But for some, including authorities in Alaska, they couldn't be certain of what his plan actually was. But there was one thing they were certain of. He was very ill-equipped. He did not have enough clothes with him, nor did he have enough camping equipment. His rifle was too small for bigger game, and the locals of the area have said if he really wanted to find a way out of his predicament, he would have set a fire. But I've already talked about why that may not have been an option for Chris. But for those who encountered him along the way, who know him to be a smart and organized young man, they can't understand why he didn't start hiking as opposed to waiting to die. His friends mull over those unanswered questions, and the only thing that they can come up with is that he simply wanted to do this himself. He didn't want to go asking for help. He didn't want to get to a cabin or a ranger station. That would be giving in to what he was running away from being dependent on civilization and material things. He did want to be out in nature, but unfortunately, his body betrayed him. I've told you that the first book about Chris's story came out in 1996, entitled Into the Wild, and the details of the domestic violence was kept out as the request of Chris's sister, Kareen. It was her way of saving her parents' reputations as she did not want to publicly drag them and give them a chance to make amends for their transgressions. But some 22 years after Chris's death, she still didn't feel like they had gotten there, so she published her own book entitled The Wild Truth and laid it all to bear. She really wanted those who knew Chris to know the whole story and the reasons why he did what he did so that it could all be put into context. She recounted the abuse that went on, and not only did her father abuse her mother, he abused her and Chris as well. She wrote about one particular incident with her father, and it's something that would demonstrate her mother's complicity. One night when she was in high school, she had gone out on a date. Her mother happened to be away that night at a vacation home in Maryland, and her father was home, intoxicated, waiting for her to come through the door. Just as she opened the front door, her dad pulled her through by the neck, lifting her off the ground and then slamming her against the wall. He screamed and threw her down on the sofa and began choking her, calling her a fucking bitch. When he finally let up, she called her mom to tell her what her dad had done, and her mother said, You know what, Kareen? I think you're a lying bitch. And that's just one example. In an interview Kareen did with OutsideOnline.com, she said that it was her hope that the new information about this very well-known story is going to be helpful to people and eye-opening. She wanted to empower others who face tough circumstances, specifically domestic violence, and that it wasn't her intention to villainize her parents, but rather humanize them so people can learn. This wasn't meant to expose anything. It was meant to answer the lingering questions as to why Chris did what he did, why he left, and what pushed him to those extremes. She said that she sent a copy of the book to her parents in advance to allow them a chance to respond without being taken by surprise by the media. I already told you their statement to the media about her book, which they basically called fiction, and they never really responded directly to Karina about it. 
but if she were to guess, she'd probably say that they would continue to remain in a state of denial. Her mother has made it clear that they are God-fearing individuals and because of their devout faith, their slate is clean and the events of the past don't matter. They don't exist. But for Corrine, the only way to get better is to acknowledge the truth. And she wrote about it in the book, to be raw, to be optimistic, hoping her parents would finally acknowledge it. But she doesn't ever really expect it. But it began to wear on her. Letting all these years go by and allowing these family secrets to be buried and let public misconceptions, conjecture, and rumors swirl around Chris's life. And she felt like allowing that to go on was doing Chris a huge disservice. And even for the 1996 book, the author kept his promise to leave out all those details and in some ways it caused some backlash that he left a very important question unanswered. Why? Corrine does think that regardless of the abuse in the family home, Chris would have been drawn to these types of adventures anyway, as many people do. But usually people let their family know where they're going, and he didn't do that. She acknowledges that he was very smart and made reasonable decisions, but he was young and made some reckless choices. But she contributes that to his upbringing and home life, to have this need to push himself to the limits as if he had something to prove to himself, that he didn't need his parents or the world for that matter to survive. And because everything he did came so easily to him throughout his life that he excelled at everything he tried, he kept needing to continue to challenge himself to feel accomplished. Chris had this belief that if you knew how your adventure was going to end, then it truly wasn't an adventure. He understood that he was taking a risk, but he had his reasons for doing it. Many people have asked Karine if she blames her parents for Chris's death, and she says that she does not, that ultimately it was Chris who put himself in that perilous situation and in the end, he accepted responsibility for his mistakes, as well as accepted his fate, which was clear in his journal writings. But what she does say is she holds her parents responsible for his disappearance and for them being unaware of where he was, that they were the reason that he felt he needed to escape and disconnect. Corrine has said that the desire to want to write the book came after many years of her parents taking the events of what happened to Chris and using it to their benefit, and that all started way back on the morning following Chris's wake, when she was having breakfast at her parents' house and her mother said this, quote, Everyone was so kind and forgiving of Chris and what he's done to this family. And this made Corrine angry. She was still overwhelmed with Chris's death in the moment, but she found herself teetering on this anger, knowing why he left, the way he did, and having not known where Chris was for more than two years, with having empathy for her parents and losing their son. She wanted to make it clear that Chris was not some audacious and disrespectful kid who had this easy life with no real complaints and just one day decided to turn on his family and disappear. And her real purpose isn't trying to defend Chris or his actions either. After so many years, it was difficult to maintain her silence about the truth. Without the truth of their family upbringing, it was giving her mother and father the chance to hide their true selves. And she could see it evolving into that. And she tried to tell them not to go there. They started doing outreaches. They began speaking about Chris and painting this portrait of themselves as some sort of martyrs, paying tribute to their son and honoring his life. Despite the fact that he 
brought all this hurt onto them. She asked them many times to stop playing into that false narrative. And when the 1996 book came out and the violence in the family was not revealed in its pages, that was their starting point to keep pushing the grieving, hurting parent story, even telling Corrine, it's not in the book, it didn't happen, and that she had no idea what she was talking about. The denial only fueled her anger because the reality was that she had gone out of her way to make sure their reputation was protected in that book. And all the while her parents were rolling with this narrative and she was keeping quiet, as was the author of Into the Wild. She told him pretty much everything, hoping that her parents would learn a lesson from their son's disappearance and death. And all the while, the millions of people out there who knew Chris's story were not only getting the wrong impression of Chris's life, but the lessons to be learned from their experiences growing up in a violent home are being kept from them as well. So what finally made her decide to bring about the book in 2014 came when she started speaking with students. In some curriculums, Into the Wild became required reading, and she could see the effect that it was having on young people who were becoming familiar with Chris's story. Over time, she became more and more confident, divulging more and more of the truth when she would answer their questions. And before long, teachers and professors were reaching out to her to tell her that her visit has caused them to have to change the way that they teach that book. And just knowing that there are young people out there that are dealing with abusive situations themselves, knowing that they might finally get to a point where they need to reach for help, it was then that she knew she needed to tell the story, the true story behind Chris's break with his family. Every year, people travel to the Stampede Trail to walk in Chris's steps through the Alaskan wild, searching for the same survivalist adventure or some sort of spiritual enlightenment. And every year, people have to be rescued because they underestimate the journey, or it's further than it seems, and they did not consider when a good time to turn around would be and end up becoming stranded. There was even one memorial to one visitor who drowned trying to cross the Tekladika River. And every time a hiker becomes stranded, it gets covered in the news and park rangers and Alaskan state troopers are made to utilize their resources to execute a rescue operation. And it's often at the ire of local Alaskans whose tax dollars have to be spent on careless or ill-prepared adventurers. And for some, that's the narrative of Chris McCandless that people are following. And it is true his survival of 113 days is impressive considering how little he brought with him. That, in and of itself, is proof he wasn't incompetent. But people coming out there, who have romanticized Chris's journey, often overlook the fact that he died doing this, and that needs to not be forgotten. And it is all too easy for someone to foolishly attempt to follow in Chris's footsteps, not realizing just how difficult of a hike it is to get to the magic bus. And nobody's personal journey should want to take them where it ultimately took Chris. And not everyone thinks Chris is someone to be admired or revered. I want to share with you an essay written by an Alaskan park ranger named Peter Christian. It reads, Chris McCandless and I arrived in Alaska in 1992. We both came to Alaska from around the same area in Washington, D.C. We were both about the same age and had a similar idea in mind. To live a free life in the Alaska wild. Years later, Chris McCandless is dead and I am living the dream I set out to win for myself. What made the difference in these two outcomes? 
There was nothing heroic or even mysterious about what Chris McCandless did in April of 1992. Like many Alaskans, I read John Krakauer's book, Into the Wild, when it first came out and finished thinking, why does this guy rate an entire book? The fact that Krakauer is a great outdoor writer and philosopher is the bright spot and makes it a great read. But McCandless was not something special. As a park ranger at both Denali National Park and where McCandless died, and now at the gates of the Arctic National Park, even more remote and wild than Denali, I am exposed continually to what I will call the McCandless phenomenon. People, nearly always young men, come to Alaska to challenge themselves against an unforgiving wilderness landscape where convenience of access and possibility of rescue are practically non-existent. I know the personality type because I was one of those young men. In fact, Alaska is populated with people who are either running away from something or seeking themselves in America's last frontier. It is a place very much like the frontier of the Old West where you can come and reinvent yourself. In reality, most people who make it as far as Alaska never get past the cities of Fairbanks and Anchorage because access is so difficult and expensive, usually by airplane, travel is so hard and the terrain is challenging, the bears are real, and so on. A very few competent and skillful people make a successful go at living free in the wild, build a home in the mountains, raise their children there, and eventually come back with good stories and happy endings. A great number give it a try and realize it is neither easy nor romantic, just damn hard work and quickly give up and return to town with their tails between their legs, but alive and the wiser for it. Some, like McCandless, show up in Alaska unprepared, unskilled, and unwilling to take the time to learn the skills that they need to be successful. These quickly get in trouble and die by bears, by drowning, by freezing, or they are rescued by park rangers or other rescue personnel. But often, not before risking their lives and or spending lots of government money on helicopters and overtime. When you consider McCandless from my perspective, you quickly see that he wasn't even particularly daring, just stupid, tragic, and inconsiderate. First off, he spent very little time learning how to actually live in the wild. He arrived on the Stampede Trail without even a map of the area. If he had a good map, he would have walked out of his predicament using one of the several routes that could have been successful. And consider where he died. An abandoned bus. How did it get there? On a trail. If a bus could get to the place where it died, why couldn't McCandless get out of the place where he died? The fact that he had to live in an old bus in the first place tells you a lot. Why didn't he have adequate shelter from the beginning? What would he have done if he hadn't found the bus? A bag of rice and a sleeping bag do not constitute adequate gear and provisions for a long stay in the wilderness. No experienced backcountry person would travel during the month of April. It is a time of transition from winter's frozen rivers and hard-packed snows with good traveling conditions into spring's quagmire of mud and raging waters where even small creeks become impassable. Hungry bears come out of their dens with just one thing in mind, eating. Furthermore, Chris McCandless poached a moose and then wasted it. He killed a magnificent animal superbly conditioned to survive the rigors of the Alaskan wild, then, inexperienced in how to preserve meat without refrigeration, the Eskimos and natives do it to this day, 
He watched 1,500 pounds of meat rot away in front of him. He's lucky the stench didn't bring a grizzly bear to end his suffering earlier. And in the end, that moose died for nothing. So what made the difference between McCandless and I? Why am I alive and he's dead? Essentially, Chris McCandless committed suicide. While I apprenticed myself to a career and a life I wanted more badly than I could possibly describe in a short essay. In the end, I believe the difference between us is that I wanted to live and Chris McCandless wanted to die, whether he realized it or not. The fact that he died in a compelling way doesn't change that outcome. He might have made it work if he had respected the wilderness that he was purported to have loved, but it is my belief that surviving in the wilderness is not what he had in mind. I did not start this essay to trash poor Chris McCandless, not intentionally. It is sad that the boy had to die. The tragedy is that McCandless more likely was suffering from mental illness and didn't have to end his life the way that he did. The fact that he chose Alaska's wildlands to do it speaks more to the fact that it makes a good story than to the fact that McCandless was heroic or somehow extraordinary. In the end, he was sadly ordinary in his disrespect for the land, the animals, history, and the self-sufficiency ethos of Alaska, the last frontier. Chris documented his travels with more than 600 pictures of himself, selfies before they were selfies. He would prop his camera on his backpack and set the timer and take the picture of himself. If you look online, you will find many of the pictures of him with the animals that he hunted, including that moose. And you can see he is very gaunt looking in many of the pictures, but you will also find his smile is genuine, his eyes are warm, and he truly does look happy and at peace in almost every picture of him that I looked at. I'll post some on social media when this episode goes live. The place where the bus still sits, the clearing is no longer overgrown. It's been worn by visitors who make the hike there and camp at the site. Over the years, items have accumulated inside the bus, including supplies for future visitors, as well as mementos people have left behind. There is a place where emergency food is stored and a medical supply cabinet. Some of the books Chris is known to have read are there in the bus's makeshift library. Some rubbish gets left behind, but also messages, inscriptions, people's musings and diary entries. The barrel stove and the bed where Chris died are still in place. On a panel inside the bus, there is a quote from Henry David Thoreau that reads, If one advances confidently in the direction of his dreams and endeavors to live the life for which he has imagined, he will meet with success unexpected in common hours. And on the bus, there are piles and piles of logbooks full of written messages from those who have visited. And among the locals, there is a debate as to what should be done with the bus. This is a place that dog sled tours stop during the winter when they are able to cross over the frozen river. And the bus is sometimes used for emergencies, for shelter for those who are out sledding, hunting, and fishing. But some feel it needs to be hauled out someplace safer for people to visit it more easily. And the bus is slowly falling apart. Over the years, visitors have taken things from the bus Someone took a steering wheel a few years ago, and then someone else took the dashboard. P. 
Pieces of the bus are slowly disappearing. Its windows are gone, and soon rust, visitors, and time are eventually going to bring the whole bus down to nothing. There is a replica of the bus in Healy, and it's a big attraction, but it's not the real thing. It was a movie prop for the 2007 movie about Chris's adventures. And every time something goes wrong at the bus or people find themselves in trouble, the debate starts up again. But when taking everything in totality, the reality is that most of the search and rescue efforts put forth are for those who find themselves in some kind of peril are actually the locals, not so much the visitors. They make up a small number of those whose wanderlust took them a little bit too far. I have not been to Alaska, and I'm not much of an adventurer and outdoors enthusiast, but I can most certainly feel the lure of the last frontier. It is a pristine, beautiful, yet dangerous place. And as for the magic bus, it may be enticing for visitors who may find themselves in a perilous circumstance while trying to visit it, but it is not the only place in Alaska that's tempting. And that can be said for just about every captivating place on Earth. Human beings get tangled up in the web which Mother Nature weaves every single day. While I understand the disdain some locals may feel for the lore that is Christopher McCandless's adventure, the bus has become a part of the landscape of the wild. And I can't help but feel that there could not have been a better, more loving, genuine, spiritual soul to have left his mark in the wild than he. Thank you so much for your patience in waiting for me to get this 56th episode of California Dreaming out there. Please join us on the discussion page on Facebook. Like the page and join the group where we all get together and talk about cases we cover on the show, other true crime news, and random stuff we like to talk about. You can also follow California Dreaming on Twitter at CaliforniaPod and on Instagram at CaliforniaDreamingPod. And if you have an iTunes and you like the show, you can go leave a rating and a review. All that helps give the show more visibility. California Dreaming has also created a Patreon. And at the end of July, we will be having a drawing for current and new Patreons for a special gift. So if you would like to gain access to more content, exclusive bonuses, early releases, and a few special perks from the show, visit www.patreon.com slash CaliforniaPod. And California Dreaming is proudly brought to you by the Orbital Jigsaw Network. We are a podcast production company located in Los Angeles, California, with a mission to create some of the best podcasts to listen to, to consistently improve upon our current rosters of shows, to develop new content that appeals to people all over the world, and to provide a thriving community for listeners and podcasters alike. I, for one, am so proud to be a part of an amazing group of shows and hosts, including The Concession Stand, Busted Wide Open, Super Nerds UK, 41 Owned, Historium, Vox Arcana, and The Podience. So please visit us at www.orbitaljigsaw.com and you can find links to all of our shows, our merchandise store, our blog, and if you just want to email us and let us know what you think, that's www.orbitaljigsaw.com. Thank you again for joining me for this episode of California Dreaming. And until next time, sweet dreams. <laughs>